Good things are about uh, worshiping the Lord. We're going to do Psalm 11 this morning, and so um, I'm going to pray for our whole Lord's Day while you find Psalm 11. Our Father, thank you for this time that we have to begin our day together, to gather around the warmth of the Word of God, to learn and to grow and to become made more like Christ. And while we really have just begun the Psalms, Lord, we're already seeing patterns, we're already seeing theological truths, we're already seeing lessons that are being repeated over and over again for us. And that's so good for us. You are the master teacher and you have laid these truths before us. And I pray that this morning would be no different than in Psalm 11 we would find our God, that we would learn more of you, that we would grow in the knowledge of Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm just going to read Psalm 11 to us. To begin, it is for the choir director of David. And he begins, In Yahweh I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. You all have those experiences that kind of stick in your mind. And one that I'll never forget was a couple years before I was called here to Grace Bible Church. Um, I'd been in some conversations, some talks with a potential church plant that was led by a a number of uh, interested families. And so I would have uh, long distance uh, calls with these families. And back in the day when we were using Skype, if you remember that, and In one of my conversations with those families, I asked the question, what kind of preaching are you expecting? And it wasn't that I was going to adjust my preaching to them. I just needed to know if they knew what they were getting into because I I didn't want them to be surprised. And in that particular conversation, one of the men, he, he must have said it 10 times. He kept saying, we need preaching that's solid. And actually, he was from Texas, so we need preaching that's solid. And, um, and he kept repeating that. <clears throat> and I don't blame him for this at all, but it took me some time to figure out that he didn't know how to define preaching that's solid. He just knew it was something. He knew it when he heard it, but he couldn't say what it was. I actually think that word solid, though, is very useful to us. It's a good description for what we could use in a different way Because I think that many Christians desire what we might call a solid faith, a solid trust in the Lord. But if we were pressed to define what a solid faith is, I don't know if we could. So that's what I'd like to do this morning. Psalm 11 is very useful to defining what a solid faith is. Verse 3 referenced foundations. It's an obvious picture of the bedrock or the stone foundation upon which an ancient building was built. So I'm going to borrow that imagery and I'm going to use Psalm 11 and we're going to have to move quickly through it to outline 10 foundations of a solid faith. 10 foundations of a solid faith. 
Now, King David, the stated author here, he's dealing with some situation in which the whole structure, the, the fabric, even the culture of Israel, the nation of God's choosing, the, the, everything was being threatened. The foundations in verse 3 are being destroyed. Now, what could destroy the foundations of God's chosen nation? Well, at the top of the list would have to be irresponsible and godless leadership. This is almost certainly written in the context of David's early struggles with King Saul. And that if Saul continued down this path of faithlessness, if he successfully killed David, who was now his rival, then the very foundation of a nation built on covenant obedience to God is going to crumble. Because when the king goes bad, the nation goes bad. And so let's use Psalm 11 to look at ten foundations of a solid faith. The first foundation we'll call the life of trust. The life of trust. Verse 1, in Yahweh I take refuge. This is David's starting point. This is a, a present perfect verb. It means I have, taken, I have taken refuge in Yahweh over and over and over again. It's a habit. His trust in the Lord has been from the past. It's in the present and it will continue throughout his life. This is pretty important because David here is in this crisis and he's not having to suddenly conjure up a trust in the Lord. He's not having to uh, have a brand new experience of, oh, I actually have to believe God for something now. It's been a lifetime habit. He trusted the Lord as a shepherd. He trusted the Lord as the anointed future king of Israel, yet still being berated by his seven older brothers. He trusted the Lord certainly in his conquest of Goliath. He is trusting the Lord that God would sort out the fact that Saul continues as king of Israel and yet David is the anointed king. This is a terrific starting point, I think, to defining solid faith. This is a a compact statement. In Yahweh, I take refuge. In Yahweh, I continue to take refuge. The present perfect. It's a compact statement that this has always been the case. It's always been the case. What's the greatest evidence of you trusting the Lord? It's answered prayer. It's you going back and cataloging how the Lord has answered prayer. And I think probably a close second is simply observing the blessings that the Lord gives you, whether you ask for them or not. Sometimes the greatest thing He gives are the things we forgot to ask for. And we're so thankful for that. And I believe if you'll take an honest look at your life in Christ, times of pain and suffering all included, uh, you would see a pattern. And the pattern is of God's care, His provision, His kindness, His grace. Well, once in a while I get to do some counseling and one question I like to ask is before we get into the big problem, whatever it is, let's catalog how God has been faithful to you. You know, on more than one occasion people have said, I don't need to talk about my problem because God has been faithful and He will. This first foundation of a solid faith simply says, I have always trusted the Lord to help me Today is not going to be the day I stop. There's a second foundation I'll call the courage of convictions. The courage of convictions. The second half of verse one, verse 1, he says, How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. David is questioning those who would urge him toward bad spiritual advice. He's saying, how can you say to me to run? How can you say to me to flee? It would have been his friends urging him to run, urging him to to get out of the situation. 
David is writing this in response to this dilemma he found himself in. It's a terrible dilemma. 1 Samuel 26 records the second time that David had the opportunity to take King Saul's life. And we, a few weeks ago, we looked at the first time. The first time in 1 Samuel 24, Saul had come into a cave to relieve himself and David and his men are hiding in the cave. David cut off part of Saul's garment to prove that he could have killed him. And now the second time, it's not that Saul comes to him, it's that he goes to Saul. David and one of his men, Abishai, they sneak into the camp of Saul and they grab the spear and the water jug right at the head of a sleeping Saul. This was once again to prove to Saul that that David's intentions weren't evil. And in fact, David gave Saul a condemning speech. Once again, he's asking Saul, why are you pursuing me? All I want to do is serve you. And in 1 Samuel 26, 20, David asks Saul why he was chasing David, quote, as one pursues a partridge in the mountains. And what does he write here? How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? It is highly unlikely that those two references are coincidental. They go together. So here's David's dilemma. He has the favor of God. He has his own, not too bad of an army, actually, going around with him. If he wanted to, he could have defeated Saul. He could have killed Saul. But David was determined to not take the throne of Israel by a force of his own power. And yet, neither did he want to stay on the run forever. So he's in, this, he's in this, uh, this dilemma here. And some of his friends were counseling him, just run, just get out of here. Look, just leave. You can go a thousand miles away, start a new life. Saul will never find you. And that was an option. But David was the anointed king of Israel. And so for him, it was inconsistent. It was incompatible with his faith to even consider just running from the situation. He stayed in it. David's picture of the wicked in verse 2, bending the bow, making the arrow ready. This isn't entirely just metaphorical. He was, in reality, one trap or one battle away from death at the hands of Saul. I think it's important to note also that elsewhere in the Psalms, arrows are symbolic of bitter, reviling, destructive words. Psalm 64.3 Those who have sharpened their tongue like a sword, they aimed bitter speech as their arrow. Why would that be included in here? Well, Saul had something that David didn't have. Saul had the ear of the public. And Saul was attempting to control the narrative of public opinion about David. He could have been easily attempting to poison the minds of God's people who previously had sung of David's slaying of ten thousands and Saul's thousands. What do do corrupt leaders always do? They always spin information in their own favor, right? And so Saul is doing this. Saul could easily convince Israel that David was bad, and if he convinces Israel that David is bad, then David's claim to the throne becomes useless, and, and it won't amount to anything. But even beyond that, just at a human level, verbal attacks alone can make somebody downtrodden enough to you feel like running, to feel like fleeing, to feel like getting out of a situation. There is a massive emotional toll from verbal attacks. And the longer they go on, the more escape seems like a wonderful option. But David stuck to the courage of his convictions. You know, when we read about him hiding in caves, you, you realize he didn't have to do that. He could have just packed up and left. He could have gone to Egypt. He could have gone anywhere in the world. 
But he wasn't swayed even by his well-meaning friends who said, hey, save yourself here. He was demonstrating a single-mindedness. He knew the will of God from the word of God given to him through the prophet Samuel concerning his own future, and he refused to take the advice to give up. He refused it. What is the courage of your conviction? The courage of your conviction lies in knowing the new covenant law of the New Testament and obeying regardless of what the culture says, regardless of what your friends say, regardless of what your family says, regardless of what peer pressure is telling you. Do we have a version of friends saying that you should flee like a bird to the mountains? We do. It's those who would attempt to reinterpret the New Testament commands in order to conform to the culture. Those are the, the even fellow believers who would say, just give in to this cultural interpretation. That God didn't really mean for only men to be shepherds in the church. God didn't really mean for wives to submit to their husbands and be busy at home. God didn't really mean for parents to spank the daylights out of disobedient children. God didn't really mean, God didn't really mean, God didn't really mean. What is that? Flee to the mountains like a bird. But we stick to the courage of our convictions. That's a solid foundation. There's a third foundation I'll call the dependence of children. The dependence of children. Verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The wicked are attacking the foundations of society. If Saul and his cronies are in mind here he's leading israel down a terrible path of covenant unfaithfulness and anytime you have a corrupt government what begins to happen society begins to crumble that's the result of a corrupt government the foundations that david is speaking of here this speaks of customs laws ways of life all of the things that that create a society and what are the foundations of a godly society basically there's three of them righteous leadership obedience to the law of God, and genuine faith in God. And so those, if those go, if, if righteous leadership goes, if obedience to the law of God goes, and if genuine faith in God goes, then society crumbles. In fact, this is what God condemns Judah for, the southern kingdom, in Habakkuk chapter 1, for what the Bible truly defines as social injustice. Social injustice is when an entire society is ignoring the law of God because the leaders have set that example. And so, considering the fact that Israel was commissioned by God to be an example nation, to be completely set apart, to live faithfully under the law of Moses, and to experience all of God's blessings for obedience, the stakes are high. They're very high. But David asks this rhetorical question, What can the righteous do? And the implied answer is nothing. Nothing in their own power. In our own power, the righteous, those forgiven by God and in right standing with God, we can't stop the erosion of society. We've been trying and it just doesn't work. The gospel slows it down just a little bit in that the the more Christians there are, the fewer godless people there are to destroy a, a stable society. But Jesus said that the godless walk down the road. And how did he describe that road? It's broad. Why is the road of the godless broad? Because it needs to fit all of them. There's so many of them. And what is the road of the righteous? It's narrow. It's small because there aren't that many. But David here demonstrates the dependence of a child. He, 
he asks the question, what can I do? And the obvious answer is nothing except to rely on a gracious God who is my Father. I, I cannot overemphasize that the life of faith in God is a life of helplessness. It's a life of weakness. It's a life of not relying on self. It's a life of acknowledging weakness. It's the life of a child depending on his father. Doing what Peter said to do in 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. What what does a little child, what does a three-year-old do when he suddenly becomes anxious? He turns and grabs the leg of a parent, right? And if he's not too bright, he grabs the leg of a wrong person. But he's looking to not depend on himself. It's instinctive. They grab a hand, grab a leg, grab on. Have you ever tried to peel a child off of you that's scared of something? It's impossible. They become supermen all of a sudden. You can't get them off. The dependence of a child, the life of faith in God, is a life of helplessness. There's a fourth foundation. The omniscience of God. The omniscience of God. The all-knowing nature of God. Verse 4 Yahweh is in His holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. David asserts that God is in His holy temple. This is where His throne is. It means that, that God is on the highest throne. And this is, this is pretty important. Considering that the issue facing David was the throne of Israel, David comforts himself as the hymn proclaims, there is a higher throne that I don't have to worry about. And from that highest of all thrones, we get this anthropomorphism that God uses the attributes of men to describe himself to help us understand him. First of all, David says, his eyes behold. This is a word that means to gaze and look intently. It's what one theologian calls divine investigation. A full awareness by God of every human detail. But it actually gets more intense than that. Not only do his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. What does this mean? How do you use your eyelids to focus on something? You squint, don't you? You squint. It's the intensity. It's this concentration. Think about, uh, and I'm going to date myself here, the great Western movie star Clint Eastwood was known as a gunfighter or a hero. And right before he's about to gun down his enemy... He squints at him. And Clint Eastwood made a billion dollars with that squint. Very intimidating. This is omniscience. This is the all-knowing nature of God that nothing about the wicked will get by him. Not only does his eye behold him, but he squints and he focuses laser beam. Or if I could put it this way, judges in our court system, they make certain types of evidence, they call it inadmissible to court proceedings, that this particular piece of evidence perhaps was, was gathered inappropriately, so we're not going to use it. Corrupt judges do this because they're biased uh, for, for one party and against another. But this isn't the case with God. All evidence is admissible because he gathered it all himself. I was sitting outside a clothing store at a shopping center a few years ago and out came running a group of teenage boys all with arm loads of clothes. And it was a little bit unusual at that time. Now it's a daily occurrence in a lot of cities, particularly in California. I decided I wasn't in the mood to get murdered for a pair of jeans. And so 
I just looked around to see if there were any law enforcement personnel in the parking lot, and of course there wasn't one. That's the way it always works. And not one minute after those kids sped away, around the corner um, comes a, a whole train of police cars. And they just happened to be coming at probably to meet for lunch at a restaurant or something, totally oblivious. If they had been there a minute sooner, it would have been, it would have been the end of the road for those kids. But it didn't happen. But God knows every one of those young men. He knows everything they took. He knows the price. He knows how it hurt people. He knows which ones he'll save. He knows which ones he'll judge. All evidence has been gathered. His eye beholds and his eyelids squint to take in every detail. God has stored up all the evidence. Here's a fifth foundation we'll call the gift of testing. The gift of testing. God isn't just squinting in perfect focus on the unrighteous. Verse 5, Yahweh tests the righteous. Now let me highlight two truths about the testing that God brings, this gift of testing. The first truth is expect it. Expect it. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the evils against the righteous, but Yahweh delivers him out of them all. How do you know God delivers you out of all the evils that will come against you? Because you're going to die gloriously gloriously you're delivered from everything at that moment and so the lord uses those things to test you will you trust him here's a second fact they're a gift from the lord trials are a gift from the lord james 1:12. blessed is a man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to those who love him why are they a gift well because they approve you and they improve you They approve you as those truly saved because you continue to turn to the Lord for help and they improve you because they teach you to trust Him in larger quantities of pain. James classically put it this way in James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. I've been asked this question a few times in that And the answer is always the same. The question is, what's one thing I could do that would instantly change my Christian life? And that one thing is always the same. Have a proper view of suffering. If you have a proper view of suffering, that a sovereign God causes your suffering, that he is the efficient cause of of everything, and that James commands us to consider it all joy because God is working through that suffering I think that's just about the most instant way to change the way you view walking the Christian life. The proper view of suffering is key to the basic walk with God that's solid, it's foundational, it's one of the main ingredients to a a life of faith. There's a sixth foundation, and I keep trying to get away from this, but I can't because the Psalms won't, and we'll call this one the certainty of justice. The certainty of justice. So far, I'll list the Psalms we've gone through that have addressed the issue of justice. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. It's highly prominent in Psalms. Justice. And we see this in the second half of verse 5. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Now I want you to notice something here. This poetic parallelism, this contrasting parallel to the whole verse. Verse 5, Yahweh tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. What is the parallelism? The contrast tells us. It tells us that if God hates those who love violence, then he loves those that he's testing. 
He loves those that eat tests. The first half of verse 5. And Hebrews 12 certainly confirms this. That God disciplines those whom he loves. The one who loves violence. This is a, a way of saying his whole soul loves that which is wrong. He's not, he doesn't struggle with his sin. He loves it. He doesn't struggle with unrighteousness. He loves it. Violence is a very broad word. It can, it can refer to anything which shakes the foundation of a society. It can be actual physical violence. It can be social injustices, which are defined as not obeying God's law pertaining to society. It can be reviling talk, which destroys reputations. It, it's the, the one who loves violence is utterly worthless. They're, they're taking up God's air. They're taking up God's water. They're taking up God's food. And unless God radically saves them, there is no redeeming quality to that person. This statement of op- opposites here, that the one who loves violence, God hates, what does that tell you? It tells you that there's great assurance that God will deal with that person. Now, why is the certainty of justice foundational to your personal faith? Why is it foundational to you having a solid faith? Well, I think to ask it this way, just how certain and comforted you are by the coming justice of the wicked is reflective of just how holy you believe God is, just how righteous he is, just how pure, how transcendent, because the justice of God is the outworking of his holiness. He will not remain forever offended. He will not remain forever countermanded. His holiness will be satisfied in justice. And so, how much you think about and how certain you are, how comforted you are about the coming justice of God toward the wicked, it actually reflects how you think about God. It reflects your level of holiness in your own mind. And that's something we're always trying to improve, right? We're always trying to have a higher and a higher view of God, that He is transcendent, that He is pure, that He's righteous. Here's the seventh foundation of a solid faith. The privilege of prayer. The privilege of prayer. Another theme all throughout the Psalms. David uses a request verb form here an imprecatory prayer in verse 6. May he rain snares upon the wicked. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Snares. This means any kind of trap whatsoever. This is, this is David asking for God to just rain traps everywhere. That, that the wicked just jump from the frying pan to the fire continually. And you definitely get a sense here, especially if you read the New Testament, you get a sense that this goes beyond simply the earthly defeat of David's enemies. The burning wind. This is a word picture, the exact word picture, in fact, used in Jeremiah 4 to describe the coming of the Babylonian armies from the north to come against a a disobedient Judah, an apostate Judah. That was the, the picture given, that they're like a burning wind coming to scorch the earth. But there's actually a more literal connection to Zechariah 14, verse 12, that when Christ returns, the armies gathered against him, their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. This is a picture of being instantly consumed or burned by the very words or the very breath of the returning judge and king, Jesus Christ. And so we we get a definite feel of eschatology here and in fact the picture of fire and brimstone 
What does that evoke in the Old Testament reader? That evokes the memories of Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone. And, and as you read the New Testament, it certainly evokes the thoughts of Christ speaking of the place where the worm does not die and the fire is never extinguished. So for David here, his prayer, his imprecatory prayer is not just, would you stop the wicked from messing with my life? It's, this is heavy duty. Would you judge them for all eternity? Now I've called this foundation of a solid faith the privilege of prayer. Why is it a privilege? We talked about this once before and I'd really like to dig a little more deeply into this. It's a privilege because the prayer by David for the coming judgment of the wicked, the prayers that we pray toward this end, these are the means that God uses to carry out his judgment. That his judgment isn't disconnected from our prayers. And I think one of the greatest illustrations of God acting in response to prayer, though he has already sovereignly ordained an event, is the prophet Daniel. He's an excellent illustration of this. Daniel chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, but it, it gives the account of Daniel reading that Israel was to be exiled 70 years, and when Daniel's reading this, he's in about year 66. So this gets pretty exciting for him. And Daniel uh, prays, he confesses sin on behalf of Israel, and at the end of his prayer, he makes a final plea. He says, Oh Lord, listen, oh Lord, forgive. O Lord, give heed and take action for your own sake, O my God. Do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. Now keep this in mind. Daniel already knows what has been decreed and yet Daniel prays for it. He was reading from Jeremiah 25. He already knows what's going to happen. He prays for it. What happens then? Daniel 9.20 Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people in presenting my supplication before Yahweh my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God. And while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, touched me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Then he made me understand and spoke with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. Listen to this. At the beginning of your supplications, your prayers, the word was issued, so I have come to tell you. That's pretty cool. Gabriel came from heaven. That's a pretty quick trip. Now, the privilege of prayer is that your prayers are part of God's sovereign plan. Jeremiah 25, where Daniel was reading, had already decreed 70 years, and they're in about year 66. It was already God's decree. And yet when Daniel prayed, the angel came and said, let's answer this prayer. What a privilege. And the mature saint understands this. Prayers, your prayers are to help bring about God's kingdom plan. What a privilege that is. Here's an eighth foundation we'll call the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. Verse 7, for Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteousness. This is a tremendous theological statement that because Yahweh is righteous, therefore he loves righteousness. He loves righteous actions because they conform to his own character. All that doesn't measure up to this standard is sin. The righteousness of God theologically is closely related to the holiness of God, the set-apart nature of God. The basic idea of righteousness is to be conformed to a law. 
That's what righteousness means. Now, there's no law above God, obviously. There's no law to which he's accountable. But there is a law, as it were, inherent in his very nature. The very highest standard possible and the standard by which all other laws are judged is the character of God. So God is righteous in that he's always consistent with his own perfect nature. He's infinitely righteous in and of himself. Or to put it this way, you and I enjoy what the Bible calls imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness means we have righteousness credited to us as if we're acting as good as Christ. Why is that an important distinction? Have we been given actual righteousness? Not yet. Actual righteousness says that all of my desires, all of my will, all of my actions, all of my words, all of my deeds, all of my thoughts, all conform to the righteousness of God. We haven't gotten there yet, have we? We have credited righteousness. That's the beauty of salvation. But God is righteous in that he's always consistent with his own character. And his righteousness is revealed in how he deals with his creatures. He, he loves those who conform to his righteousness. And of course, we can't do that yet in our own power, but only through Christ, by credit, as it were. You remember that Jesus said that his disciples will be known because they obey him? That if you love me, you obey my commands? Why is that? Your, your obedience is conformity to righteousness and God loves righteous deeds because righteous deeds reflect his character. God loves everything that reflects his character. So why would we say, though, that the righteousness of God is a foundation of solid faith? It's the righteousness of God which provokes the eventual judgment of all who do not conform to his righteousness. If you love God, you love his righteousness. It's the righteousness of God which guarantees that our prayers for the judgment of the wicked will most certainly be answered. His righteousness demands that he issue forth justice. I, I hope you're noticing that the maturing believer with solid faith, you think about lofty, heavenly, theological things. That, that we're not down here in, in the muck and mire just having little bumper stickers to try to define our whole faith. Here's a ninth foundation We'll call this one the favor of heaven. The favor of heaven. The upright will behold his face. The end of verse 7. The upright will behold his face. Now the face of God can speak metaphorically of judgment. For example, Exodus 33.20, You cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. But the face of God can also speak of divine favor. Numbers 6 The blessing of Aaron, Yahweh make his face shine upon you. Yahweh lift his face upon you and give you peace. Psalm 30 verse 7, Oh Yahweh, by your favor you have made my mountain to stand strong. You hid your face, I was dismayed. So the hiding of the face of God is lack of favor. Showing of the face of God is favor. Psalm 31 16, Make your face to shine upon your slave. Save me in your loving kindness. Now you notice what David calls the believer in God at the end of verse 7, the upright. This is the same concept. It's a different word in Hebrew, but it's the same concept as righteousness. Those who are given the imputed righteousness of God and demonstrating this by an obedient life. The upright shall behold his face. They shall experience favor, experience blessing from the Lord. 
Jesus put it this way in Matthew 7, verse 9. What man is there among you who, when the son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? I think it's pretty important to remember that your Heavenly Father delights in showing you favor. Why? Because you're His child. Every parent loves to show preference to their children. And God shows preference to you as His child. I think there's a terrific example of this in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7.14 deals with the situation of a Christian married to a non-Christian and the state of their children. Now, this isn't a a 100% rule, but more of a proverb or an axiom. But Paul says that generally speaking, those children are holy. They're blessed. Why? Because they have even just the one believing parent. There's favor shown to the children of believers in general. And just to be a little bit personal, in in my own life, I could name so many instances where God has simply shown me undeserved favor. And it's favor so great at times, sometimes I'm almost uncomfortable with it. Great favor from the Lord in the wife that He gave me. I've shared this before, but I had a pretty rotten childhood. And getting to meet Sylvia one week after I left home, that was the favor of the Lord. It changed my life. Great favor in allowing me to preach the Bible. And I got to tell you, I take every single opportunity as a gift as if heaven might realize, wait a minute, who let him in to preach? And I, I want to do that before somebody figures that out. Great favor in my children. Every one of them different. And an amazing gift for different reasons. Great favor in this, this particular pastorate. I, I marvel at our church members, your hunger for God's word, the core of fellow pastors and elders and deacons I'm surrounded by. It's just, it's just favor after favor. But listen, the foundation of solid faith is to rightly see God as showing you favor every day. I would challenge you, as one who beholds the face of God, who receives the favor of God, to this particular week, just get out a notebook or an iPad, whatever you want, and just make a list of every single time you feel like the Lord's showing you favor. It can be little, it can be big. And I think you'll be amazed at how many pages you will fill. But using the same verse, I want to do a final, a tenth foundation I'll call the coming of paradise. The coming of paradise. The upright will behold his face. Beholding the face of God, of course, also has connotations of our final exit from this world and our entrance into paradise. Seeing the face of God is your personal eschatological hope. I have a little file box at home with things like wills and instructions and things like that and it's labeled personal eschatology and that way if somebody's trying to steal my important papers they won't know what that is but here's what the bible says about our eschatological hope psalm seventeen fifteen. as for me i shall behold your face i will be satisfied with your likeness when i awake job nineteen twenty six. the ancient patriarch job said, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God. The mature believer has learned to look heavily heavenward. And if I could say this, don't wait until you're closer to heaven than you are to your own birth to do that. Do that now. Encourage young people to do that. 
So we have seven verses, ten foundations of a solid faith. I, I want to give you two closing applications, and we just have time for this. First of all, a general application. That when you're faced with the breakdown of a society, and we are, because of wicked men, we stand firm in our faith, and we trust that our sovereign God will judge. And we just sit back and watch. Second, a specific application to three different groups. We'll do it by age. For those of you more at the beginning of life, at the beginning of your adult life, don't waste decades playing around with your faith. Don't waste decades playing with immaturity. The life of trust, the courage of convictions, the dependence of children, the omniscience of God, the gift of testing, the certainty of justice, the privilege of prayer, the righteousness of God, the favor of heaven, the coming of paradise. Psalm 11 just handed you a formula. You could meditate on those things every day for a year and you wouldn't have enough time. But don't waste time. I have, as a pastor, talked to so many Christians who are 45 and 55 and 65 and 75 and with weeping saying, I feel like I'm just now starting to really follow the Lord. My wish for you in the younger parts of your life is that you would make a plan to learn or grow in every one of those foundational ways. To grow solid quickly. To not say, well, I'll just wait until I grow in the Lord naturally. And then for those of you approximately at the halfway point of life, and I'll let you define what that is. I have a simple two-part question. Which of those foundations of solid faith do you know you're lacking in and what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? There, there does become a time to say it's time to be a grown-up in the Lord and to be great. When will be the right time to drop to your knees and beg God for help to learn Scripture pertaining to the areas where you lack, to take it deadly seriously as you enter into the years? Because you're entering into the years where others are going to look at you. And what do you have when you have a generation of 40, 50, and 60-year-olds who don't know how to follow Christ? Now, entire churches just go down the drain because there's no examples. And then for those of you closer to heaven than you are to your birth, where can you sharpen? Where can you, as Paul told the Thessalonians, excel still more? Where have you perhaps gotten spiritually lazy and need to revitalize your concern for that particular foundation? Or if I could put it this way, don't coast to the finish line. Don't coast. Pursue sanctification every single day because all of you will have one final test. You, you have a final test of sanctification and it's a simple two-word phrase. Die well. That's your test. And so don't coast, sharpen up, excel still more. Can you believe in seven verses God has given all this information about faith which is solid? I hope you'll take some time and meditate on Psalm 11 this week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these seven verses, just a, a short little text of poetry which is just bursting with truths to help us to walk with you in maturity, in obedience, in solidity of our faith. I pray for each person hearing this, Lord, that there would be a determination, whether young or middle-aged or older, that we would excel still more. That we would be truly great men and women of faith who trust you at a growing and increasing level every year of our lives. 
all to the glory of Christ, who trusted you even at the moment of his death when you would pour your judgment upon him and yet he trusted you to bring him through it. May we be like him. We praise you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.